Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Uh, cool, so we're doing Chariots of Fire. I would hum the song, but oh, I don't I, remember it. I don't even know the song. I know literally nothing about this uh, chariots of fire, chariots of fire, chariots of fire, chariots of fire. Oh, we have our chariots, they are on fire. You better get some water or we'll all die. Chariots of fire, chariots of fire. Chariots of fire, chariots of fire. The horses are all dead. I'm gonna love this movie. Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, it's an in-memoriam episode. We are marking the passing of the actor Sir Ian Holm, who passed away last month, and we're going to watch one of the films of his that we haven't watched yet. Normally you'd expect something like Alien or Lord of the Rings to be here, but we've already done those. So we're going to the film that brought him his only Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. We're watching Chariots of Fire. Joining me to watch Chariots of Fire, we have, as always, someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Dean Lovett! Hello, my name's Dean Lovett. How are you, Dean Lovett? I'm pretty good. I'm all things considered. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, you were actually on the last episode that we did before we went into uh, COVID lockdown. Terminator. Terminator. So yeah. is it back to back for me? Um, well, well no, because we've done back episodes. To, oh, since okay, then. sorry. But in terms of like live ones, we've just gone back to live ones. Right. But this means that we've not uh, seen you in a podcast capacity since the outbreak of a horrible pandemic. You don't so know what happened to me? Yeah, how's how's life been? For oh, Dean look, I had to go road warrior there for a bit, uh, but fortunately. Um, I look good in a gimp suit, so uh, I managed to come out of it pretty pretty all right, yeah. Excellent. And Chariots of Fire? Uh, I know zero about this movie. I, I genuinely considered maybe doing a quick Google to get a blurb, but I thought, uh, how often can you come in and know absolutely nothing about it? I think it's a sports movie? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm glad I was right. I was worried it was about some sort of chariot racing or something. Um, yeah, no, I got nothing. I got nothing. So uh, I'm looking forward to kind of just coming in completely blind. I think mm. that's a rare thing with movies in this day and age. All right. Well, joining us as someone who has seen the film and clearly knows lots about it, it's Dr. Sarah Curtis. Hey, Stephen. Uh, now, I do say that, but I, I happen to know from uh, a conversation we had earlier it's been a long time since you've watched Chariots of Fire. I was five. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's been... Several decades. Was this something from your childhood or just like, um, does this mean anything to you? It means, I, I did like the song. I remember the music, which I currently can't get into my head because I have our own version stuck in my head right now. Mm. Um, Wait, is this where that, dun, 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 this is the movie that, that comes it. from? Yeah. <laughs> I know the cultural touchstone, but I don't know the movie. Yeah, the Fantastic. inspirational music. Oh, so there's going to be a slow motion, like, yeah, 
where is he? Someone Where do you think that came from? Race. Yeah. It, it, it's, what? Now I know. Yeah. I mean, ugh, I'm learning things already. Yeah. So, given that you don't remember much about it, um, I, I, I suppose I will ask, what can you expect except for that that song? What else can we expect from Chariot Safari? Lots of running, I believe. I believe it's about someone who likes to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a coach who goes, yeah, you run, boy. Mm. And, uh. and Ian Holm plays that coach. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, and before we jump into it, uh, obviously Ian Holm passing away. Um, yeah, very, very sad. Just to um, be clear, he didn't pass away. He just got on the ship into the Undying Land. Yeah, he sailed west. Well, that's just it. We sat in, in your house, Sarah, which uh, for people who've not been here, has so much Lord weapons. of the Rings-based paraphernalia. Weapons. Yeah, there's weapons. I mean, there's a weapon right over there. There's a sword that I can't put on a wall. There are many weapons in this room, and I believe Sarah's, quote, enjoyment or love of Lord of the Rings might just be to mask her need for... That's a fair assessment. Weapon-based violence. Yeah. Given that, though, um, obviously Ian Holm was a, a pretty crucial part of the those uh, the original trilogy, that sort of film adaptation. Um, what 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 are your I suppose what are your thoughts on Ian Holm, like in terms of specifically as Bilbo, but more generally as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose he's like a staple of my childhood. Mm. So you know, he's always kind of there in the background. He is. Bilbo to me. Sorry, Martin. Um, mm. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know much about him um, except for what I've seen in his films. Um, I know that he was a wonderful stage actor. Um, you know, I know um, that he was very ill um, in the last several years of his life. Mm. Um, and, you know, I he actually taught me some fundamental acting skills um, because of what he did on Lord of the Rings. Because mm. in... Anyone who's listening knows how much I love the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, and how I always bring it to Lord of the Rings somehow naturally mm. every time I'm on, quite yeah. by accident. You brought it up this time. It mm. is your fault. Yes. Um, but yeah, one of the main things that got me into acting was, you know, he, he was behind the scenes in Lord of the Rings and it was mentioned that he would make every take different mm. when a lot of actors, you know, they do it the same. They, they hit, hit their marks and they try to reproduce their same the same performance, mm-hmm. and he would make each take subtly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of, as a nine year old watching this, was fascinating to me that someone would be able to just bring that emotional honesty to every single take and just be gen- so generous to the editors. Mm. With all that being said, shall we watch him and Chariots of Fire? Do it. Yes. For those of you listening at home, pop in those DVDs and prepare to go for a run on the beach to the music of Vangelis as we watch Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Chariots of Fire. And by we, I, of course, mean uh, Dr. Sarah Curtis. Yep. And Mr. Dean Lovett. Yes. And I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Uh, Dean. Yes, my love. That was your first time watching um, (laughs) Chariots of Fire. Yeah. What did you think? I had a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Uh, Can you be more specific? I do have one question off the bat. Mm. Why is it called Chariots of Fire? (laughs) 
good I think, I think I was expecting some sort of Ben-Hur situation. Mm. Um, so, I, I looked this up just to make mm. sure. The film's title was inspired by the line, Bring Me My Chariot of Fire, from the William Blake poem adapted into the British hymn, Jerusalem, which is heard sung at the end of the film. Can right. we not have the poem? Like, have instead of a sermon... Since we have so many sermons in this film, can we not just recite poetry? That'd be a much better film. Um, even the poetry was, by the sounds, I don't, I'm not familiar with the poem, but mm. it sounds like the poem was also quite yeah. dogmatic. Yeah, as most so, of this film ended up being. So I, I haven't watched this film before, but I was sort of knowing what to expect a little bit from from knowing because you are British. Because I'm British, because I, I'm sort of aware of stuff that Chariots of Fire inspired, mm. and. I watched this film and I wasn't necessarily blown away by it, but I feel as though, just based on the conversation we were having as we were watching it, that you didn't particularly enjoy this film, did Gasp. I actually wouldn't say that. I mean, mm. look, I'm going to say the same line I've said every podcast I've done, yeah. which is it's all about context. And in this case, I think we enjoyed uh, Friendly poking, banter? poking a bit of fun. Uh, I enjoyed the experience of watching the film. I think if I watched it on my own, I probably wouldn't have stuck around to the end. Um, I wouldn't say it's a bad film. I mean, I noticed right from the bat, and I think we all commented, the cinematography was fantastic. Mm. Uh, Obviously, they had a lot of visual splendor to work with. um, But there was, you know, some long tracking shots that I noticed, some ones that would go from, you know, an outside shot into an inside shot and move through the window glass. There was some good stuff there. And, like, the framing of it as well. Some of those, some of those angles and, yeah, beautiful. Hmm. Um, I mean, ironically enough, the stuff that I'd say was probably filmed the worst was the actual running, Mm. which (laughs) upsets me. Since that's what it's supposed to be about. Well, (sighs) see, that's just it. I I feel as though, I'm trying to wrap my, my, my mind around what we just saw as well. I think that this film had a lot of really good elements, but was still quite unenjoyable mm-hmm. and mm. that's that's the thing in in terms of <sighs> name a moment from this film there was a dog on the beach there was a dog on the beach name what? a moment that sticks out from this film oh, sticks out that, um that isn't vangelis uh music inspired like what's a moment that sticks he punched out through his hat that was pretty good <laughs> yep yep ian holm punching through his hat that yeah. was good um, the moment when the, a moment, I named yeah, the yeah. moment when the movie started, which I don't think actually happened, mm. uh, because we got to the end and we're sitting there going, "When's the plot gonna kick in?" Yeah, I, it, it's Look, really... there was some beautiful scenery, some beautiful settings. Yeah, it, it's really weird because I mean, it's it's a film that's based on true events, and most of the characters in this film are real people who were around in the nineteen twenties and which competing. Is why they sucked in the Olympics. Well, well, that's the thing though is we're looking at people from. A, a section of society which mm. um, are not massively popular with everyone, and that yep. is privileged I will, young people. I will be honest; I was very put off. I, I felt like not a single one of these characters in any way connected with me. Well, they were trying to like say yes, you know, connect with these people because they're struggling. Except they came. But there was no students. struggle whatsoever. Well, they're rich. Well, Eric wasn't. Eric Little wasn't. He was. I think he was somebody was who had... A, well, this is probably the only reason why I was like... Um, little Scottish bloke, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was probably the only... And I said as much, I was like, oh, I can see why they saved the last race for him, because he's the only one that didn't feel like a petulant child. Mm. 
being I mean, like, daddy's money is sending me to the Olympics, you know. Mm. His conflict was more spiritual and family based. Yeah. Um, which... I thought that was his wife until you told me it was his yeah. sister. Oh, with, yeah, with uh, Jenny. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at this film and I got some vibes of like, you know, when people watch like a period piece? Mm hmm. Um, or, you know, you, you can, a period piece, you know what a period, especially a British period piece. Um, and it's, and, and there's some with great plots and some with great acting and some with, but you also get the sense that a big part of it is just wanting to get that eye candy of those, you know, ornate costumes, a different time, mm. you know, like large parts of, in my opinion, a lot of Jane Austen's work was more about transporting you to a different time and a different place. That's when they get it wrong. Uh, uh, a lot of the 90s Jane Austens, I feel, did that. But anyway, side note. But that's an appealing thing to people. And I think I, I got those vibes from this of that, you know, the upper crust in the in the sorry, 1920s, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah. The, the events of the film take place between 1919 and 1924. Mm. Um, so it is that just coming out of World War One period. I mean, or- I think they spent at least 25% of the movie in their like tuxedos. Mm. drinking champagne and stuff like mm. but would you have right. wanted would you have wanted more running considering yes. that the running was shot so badly no. uh oh well i mean i well okay i wanted more focus on the sports <laughs> uh and better focus on the sports as well because it really doesn't feel like a sports film despite how much there is there is athleticism taking place like and sarah you're someone who I know is not a big sports person. I'm not a sports ball fan at all. Yeah. And there were no balls to sport in this film. Either. Yeah. How dare. Um, but given that this film... I, I just want to know what was kind of your take on it. Like, because it, it didn't feel like a sports film. Was that actually good for you? In in the sense of watching it as someone who's not generally into as competitive sport. As someone who doesn't like sport, I wish they'd done the sport better. Right. Because I can get behind good sport. There was... There was points where we were like, "Oh wait, that's this thing." Yeah, like when they when they went they to the Olympics, hmm. uh, I think we both thought that it was just some heat that hmm. they were going to have the next sort of build up, and hmm. then there was an entire race. Yeah, Lord Lindsay's race that we thought was a heat, a heat, but it yeah. was the final because they spoke of it being a heat earlier on, hmm. and the heat was on Sunday, and that's why he couldn't do it, and then suddenly it but was. Obviously, that the just race. means. Yeah, that was the whole thing. I mean, I mean, there are, there are bits. I I think there is quite a good story in there. I just don't know that it's necessarily been told that well in this film. Like the idea of an athlete like Eric hmm. Little, who is obviously very devoted to his religion, and like many athletes of the time, yeah. uh, who were sort of quite devoutly Christian, they they weren't competing in sporting events on the Sabbath on Sunday, as with people who are observing other religious practices as well. Um, And I think it's something that the way, in the same way that we view films today and we sort of try and compare them to films of the past, viewing the way we look at sport today to the way we look at it back in those days, because this is almost 100 years ago, these events. And the Olympics, the Olympics of 2024 should, you know, assuming that they get back to the regular schedule, Mm. um, that that is going to be a massively different event from the Paris 1924 games. Oh yeah. Um you know there's the there's not going to be athletes with little trowels digging out their own little running holes. That was my favorite the gardening was my favorite part. <laughs> Best part uh, of the race when you garden and you need your watering. So and that was part of it I was trying to find the um 
adversity that the, mm. the especially i mean it's very much a trope for movie uh, for for sports movies but moreover you know most movies it's like you need you need something to fight against otherwise it's just a cakewalk uh i think unfortunately in this one it very much felt like a cakewalk for all the characters mm. um because they were so rich and they're in the yeah anyway yeah, yeah they uh, just complained their way through the film so the two that we had was um the younger bloke i forget his name harold the, abrahams abrahams yeah um not liddell no, yeah, it was Eric Little was the Scottish guy, and then Harold Abrahams Little. was the yeah. Cambridge student who Abrahams, who completed the the courtyard challenge yeah. at the beginning. Abrahams had a very good. slight uh, adversity in the sense that people were like, "You're taking this too seriously," and you've got a coach that's a professional, even though if I don't know what his professional, what this professional running coach was supposed to not for be gentlemen. A, I'm just if you call someone a professional, that implies they make a living off being a running coach. But mm. if you can't have a running coach for the Olympics, what professional running was there? Well, side note. Uh, so he faced adversity. Yeah. Sorry, he faced adversity for taking it too seriously. And I was like, okay, there's a little something there. Never, nothing ever bad happened to him. I mean, he there had, was the slight racism. Uh, he had a talking to. Yeah. He had the two. He's like, we think you're taking this too seriously, and he said, no, I'm not, and then left, and then. And then Nothing right at the else. end, they're cheering on, yes, we always yeah. knew he could do it. And you're like, okay, well, but sh- give us something. And then, of course, our other bloke, um, Little. Name. Yeah. Um, little, you know, he his adversity was that he didn't want to run on the Sunday. And he kind of came around it. And like, I liked that, you know, he was getting pressured and he was getting pressured by people in serious positions of power. And, yeah. and I mean, obviously, this was it wasn't really brought out in the film. But we discussed the, you know, the, the tension between him talking to the Prince of Wales as a Scottish person, you know, around that time. I was like, OK, this is actually kind of a well-crafted scene. Mm. Unfortunately, um, the religious aspect gets, got played up a lot more than I, uh, I really enjoyed, but it was an older film. They did that. <laughs> is it, is it unfortunate, though? Because I, I think it's also part of the fact that we don't tend to view films specifically from like a very uh, focused viewpoint of a religion. Like uh, I think it aged it horribly. And okay. I, I think the way they did it, if they'd done it in mm. a different... If they framed it differently, it could have worked. Yeah. But when you have the sister just basically beating him over the head saying mm. you must respect god mm. you must respect god that <laughs> doesn't feel respectful See, to the religion i no here's okay here's my thing i actually thought she was the worst aspect of that yeah because she was being she was incredibly selfish she's horrible he was like i have a passion for this and i think this is a way to express my religious beliefs and she was like no and like I, I, terrible choice of for her. Yeah. but i think they just brought her in so that he could have earlier scenes of adversity um, when I say it aged horribly, it just, it was incredibly dogmatic in terms of its particular religious message. Mm. Like he, he recited a sermon in the, uh, as voiceover during his own race mm. and during the race he does, he gets a note from his sister that says like, if you honor God, honor, God will honor you, which he holds on to mm. during the race, a terrible decision in any racing coach will do. Uh, <laughs> he didn't have one you know, though. <laughs> Uh, like that photo shop there, it's opened in a church and ended in a church. Mm. Like it, it opened in a f- whose funeral was it? It was the fu- it was Harold Abraham's funeral because it was 1978 and he died in January so, 1978. Right, so they were friends by then. <laughs> when you combine... we never saw that. Well, well, okay. So it, the the two people who were there at the end were the um, Lord Lindsay oh, the uh, character mm. and um, the one that we actually thought uh, yeah. was cool, pretty and cool. uh, Montague, who was the one Not that the that raced but didn't win anything yeah right um because because uh little died as we saw in the thing at the end mm. the little text he died in 1945 mm. um in in japan occupied china in the second world so War. he wasn't there in that yeah 
Um, so yeah, he was long dead by the time he got to that funeral. Uh, uh, yeah. So that so the very heavy religious tones, which again for its time, fine. Mm. Um, and you know that combined with the fact that this was about a, just a bunch of white boys who all come from serious wealth, with the exception of maybe the Scottish bloke. But let's be honest, he wasn't. He didn't look like he was hurting for much. Mm. You know, they were all kind of interchangeable to the point where I wasn't yes. sure who was on screen at what time. It, it and and it, it very it was very Britain forward. Mm. Uh, it it with time. If I look back at that, I don't know what exactly politically was happening in the eighties, but I'm like. That's some good propaganda right there. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was mm. recently in yeah. power. It was, a, it was a time of, I suppose, more sort of like conservative Look at mindsets. this in- incredibly religious, un- like, undertoned story of, of you, the United Kingdom's triumph. But it was you know? a, it was something that was happening in lots of places around the world. It's right at the start of Reagan's era mm. in America. And you look at the way media changed oh, yeah. uh, to, to reflect that those sort of prevailing... You know, the 80s was a time of... Oh, well, the 80s was the time of every action movie villain represented whichever particular culture uh, was being fought against at any yeah, particular so time. Usually yeah. communist. I mean, we talked yeah. a lot about nationalism as we were watching this film and just how yeah, in I got, focus it was. Uh, it, I mean, you know, it, at least it's not quite as bad as the American 80s propaganda where it was like, hmm. this bad guy looks exactly like Che Guevara. Let's blow him up with American hmm. muscle, you know. I, this I, one was a bit more like, let's yeah. just have a thing that we were good at for a period I, I, did, I did like the Americans in this film, I will say. They were like good, like classic film Americans. Yeah. Yeah. When when the film is not made by Americans. Where it's like <laughs> it they're... definitely felt like <laughs> the British version of Americans. Just like, <laughs> look at those guys. They turn up, there's confetti, they're kissing random women, one of them's wearing sunglasses. What, yeah. what, what, they are a bit better than us, I guess, but... <laughs> but be... they also suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, yeah. that was probably my biggest issue was that there was, with the exception of the one guy we liked who turned out to be the only one it wasn't based on a real person or might have been loosely based, uh, I just looked at all these people and I thought, what adversity? What have you done? Mm. But but the, the female love interest was staring at him lovingly oh, the whole time. The, every, I believe in you. I'm mm. going to be honest, Simple. every female character in this movie was pointless. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I'm going to agree with that, where we, we essentially have two main female characters, Sybil and Jenny. Jenny is a point of adversity to Eric. Mm. And representing is there representing his family who are obviously very devoutly Christian and yeah. that that conflict they would give have been her a, something to do yeah unlike Sybil who was the sexy lamp uh, yeah, yeah she was yeah I yeah. mean she represented his see look you've got everything you need it's his time future. to move on with you yeah but she was mm. again they made so much out of like I'm gonna go on a two week vacation and maybe win a world title as if that was. I mean, that was also partly because they never showed... And this is the thing. This is where it brought back. Is in a movie like this, there was absolutely room to show the adversity. Show them working hard. Show them working out. Show us him, his grades dropping or something. uh, Because he's, you know, he's working too hard. He's focusing on the running. And then he gets to talking to from the headmaster. He's like, hey man, you got to focus on your future. And then Mm. they're actually blending that in. A, A sports, you know, show the heats. Maybe he does well. Maybe he lose. You know, we had that one of, um... Abraham's versus uh, Little, and he lost, and it was a big deal. And then they never raced again. They never came head to head. There's never. They just yeah, did nothing with it. No, um... Other than show him having a temper tantrum. Yeah, God, over the, the loss. Yeah. I just think there were so many opportunities to be like, look at the hard work and the effort and the triumph here. Whereas what we mostly got was like seventy five percent rich boys in tuxes drinking champagne and whining about how hard their lives and, are. Well. Yeah. So 
I feel like we should touch on one of the things in this film that I did enjoy, and that was the performance of Ian Holm. Uh, yeah. As Sam. He he's really he, he is good and Sam I think is actually quite well written as mm. like a that positive mental. I wanted character. more from him. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like he didn't really do much. Mm. I was sitting there and we discussed this as well, asking, you know, why did he get nominated for this role? Yeah. Like everything he did mm. was good, but what he got like he just didn't get enough for me to be like, Oh, yeah. this is an Oscar I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the criteria was, but I mean everything he did was good. He just know? kinda stood there and said Yes, you he had can some do good better moments, with like good, a bit of a mumble. Some good speeches. I mm. wanted to see more about his character. Mm. His character was had an interesting background and like, and but, but amazingly enough, the, the only people that actually like, we heard Abraham's defend him, and you're like, oh, I'm glad a rich white boy is here to defend this minority. I mean, to be fair, who's not he, even allowed on Jewish. in the Olympic stadium. Like Abraham's was Jewish, so they did have that sort of you know I mean, in common. Sh- I don't know. His character felt very interesting. And like, we were talking about how he wasn't there during the race. And I was like, why isn't he there? Show me that. Mm. Show me that conversation where they're like, your coach can't be here. That would have been more interesting. And given it that conflict. I mean, that was very much implied. And I feel like this is a film of implication, but that I worry that that wasn't shown Mm. because that would have been a decision on the part of the British Olympic team Mm. to not let him be there. And I worry that speculatively that maybe that was a decision made with the similar idea in mind it might be a bit of propaganda yeah, no, it could have yeah. been it absolutely could have been i i feel as though that there's this film does have issues with communicating what is happening and i i, I part of me thinks that there is quite a good film in there somewhere but that I, as, look as, as critical as i'm being i yeah. could actually i could actually forgive a lot of these things for it just being mm. the 80s uh, and this mm. film being a product of its time, and it did do a lot of a lot of things right, you know. Yeah, like you said, the cinematography was excellent. Um, mm. You know, this, this the film... budget was definitely high. Yeah, but God, uh... when they were playing cricket under the chandeliers, <laughs> I swear, I was like, "You're gonna break them." <laughs> so I wanted that shot. No, one of them just <laughs> six and out. <laughs> yes, um, I'm, I was just checking. This film was not nominated for a cinematography Oscar that year, which is a shame. I mean, what else came out there? Yeah, I don't know, but it was well shot. Mm. I mean, um, seemed to me. What was nominated again? I mean, I don't normally look at. It didn't. I'm not someone who looks at. Do you look at like cinematography? Depends. Mm. Uh, if it jumps out at me, I'll notice. Yeah, something it, like but... War and Peace. I'm sitting there going, "This is the prettiest thing I've ever seen." Yeah. Mm. Um, like I'll notice good cinematography, but this one, like, but it has to stand out to me. Well, yeah. You know, speaking of um, period pieces um, and Austin, uh, the most recent version of Emma. Now, I've always hated mm. Emma as mm. a story. And the new one, the cinematography, got me. Oh, okay. Um, it, it really drew me in because it was so pretty. They knew mm. what they were doing. I think they know that that's part of the appeal of a lot of that, yeah. those works. Yeah. It didn't get nominated for um, the cinematography Oscar, but it was actually nominated for seven Oscars, this film. Mm. Um, Go on. Ian Holm obviously was nominated, but didn't win for Best Supporting Actor. He actually lost okay. out to John Gielgud, who is in this film, <laughs> But was nominated for a different film, mm. um, so he missed but out. That on made that. him feel good. Uh, yes, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, the director Hugh Hudson was nominated, but didn't get it. Um, and Terry Rawlings, who was the editor, was nominated, but didn't get it. It did win there four was some Oscars good, though. On the editing, there was definitely Music. some good shots in it. It did win the Oscar for best musicks. Evangelist got the Academy Award for best original Makes score. Sense. I mean, that song was iconic, and then it had so much. 
um, musical, some really good music. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, could, I, could, I could give them that. Yeah. It got the Academy Award for Best Costume, which okay. I, yeah. It, it, yeah. the costumes were great. There was so much eye candy. In there. Um, mm-hmm. Milena Cananero did a really good job with that. Um, mm. re- did they, we, we were saying at the start of the film, like, these mm. costumes are great. And, mm. and I think that was absolutely yeah, did. Uh, it got the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Okay. What screenplay? The, the the one that they were reading off. I yeah, really? Are you sure? Yeah, it it got the Academy Award I mean, for Best Original Screenplay. Okay, sure. I I don't see it, but I, I mean, it's sometimes it's hard to tell with screenplays and what gets lost in the edit and stuff. I guess but. it was up against um the the films it was up against and B were Absence of Malice, Arthur, Atlantic City, and Reds. I haven't seen any of them. I yeah, me neither. So I yeah, I can't comment. And it also won Best Picture. Right against who? <laughs> it I mean, it could have been, been slow year, you know. Like... It won against. I mean, how how British like, was the was like the academy at the time? It won against Atlantic City, Reds, On Golden Pond, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. What? Come on! Hey, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a popcorn flick. It's a good yeah. film, it's but it's not film. Oscar. It's not. But this is this academy is Award. a best picture Oscar winning film. Sure. I mean, again, I don't know what happened. It, it was, it was all in all, it was a well-made film. Mm. Um, you know, when I say made, I mean the individual disparate elements. Um, I just think there was uh, maybe not script. No. I don't know. I, I think it was what was interesting was I was partially expecting this to be a, a sports film, and then it just did none of the sports film tropes. And I'm not a fan of sports films particularly, but I know that those tropes work. You know. And it, mm. this film could have used some of them. Yeah, if to... you're going to set them up as underdogs, you've got to do that right. So we actually want them to win. But I didn't, didn't want them to win. They he they never lost. Mm. The only person he ever lost to was someone from the same team. Because mm. we just didn't see much running. So every now and then we'd be like, oh, they're going to run a race today. And they won. And well, I guess it's There's really no hard there. to make running in a circle or in a straight line interesting to watch. I disagree. I think... <laughs> If you do the right cinematography, you build tension through music. You, the trick there is you show the work. Mm. You know, you show the incredible... And they, they did it, but I think it counted for maybe five minutes in the total film mm. of showing them training or stretching or doing something. Yeah, there was there was a montage in there. It so was when a they talked montage. about mm. doing hard work, you're just like, what? I don't know. We had the massage scene. Which no. probably earned oh. th- that um, nomination. Is that the cue for us to talk about what we really want to talk about? <laughs> Which is Ian Holm massaging people. We want to talk about the sheer uh, deluge of homoerotic subtext that in this film. Us. It was it was damp. So so okay, um, I, I'm 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 game because I I obviously heard this conversation. And I think it is interesting to discuss. Um, because there are a lot of these films where we're looking at men being men, like mm. films we've covered in the well, last year. Well, these were year, boys. Yeah. The films we've covered in the podcast in the last year, um, things like Ben-Hur and Spartacus, and there's all these like mm. guys and they're fit yeah. and sometimes they're oiled and it's like... But it, they're not like too fit. They're just like... Perfectly fit. Yeah. yeah they're like slim. You and know what I mean? Some of those films, um, like Ben-Hur absolutely do have written into them. Uh, homosexual subtext. Um, there is a homoeroticism that's very deliberately there. I don't know that for me there was in this film, but I no, is in like deliberately. I think what, oh deliberately, yeah, no, it no. wasn't deliberate. I'm thinking, oh, I, oh no, no, yeah, I'm thinking what we're seeing is just very maybe much... that one character who won the 
He won his silver. The Lord Andrew guy. The Lord Lord, Lord Lindsay. He was pretty yep, extra. He was extra. He had cravats and champagne and but I feel as bare that feet and I feel that that's kind of like conflating extraness with um, stereotypes. Well, we're talking eighties extraness. Yeah. And it's a period piece set in the twenties as well. Mm. So yeah. there's that. I mean, because a lot of the mm. the things we were commenting on are more modern terms yeah. which obviously weren't used in that way yeah. at the time yeah. i i i definitely when like as you say like when you talk about the older films of like men doing men things and boy doing boy thing you know uh there is a sense that i get that's like there was no one they didn't have the social awareness or the self-awareness at the time to be like hey man do you want to try that take again and this time without staring into his eyes while you talk about an attractive woman but it was mm. beautiful um like they, I, I just think it was almost this like the ignorance of that kind of that that you could read into it in that way because it was well, like we couldn't possibly read into it like that because that's not a thing in our society. It you was know? like the massage scene when he's getting oiled up on the table when Ian Holm is you know doing the strangest mm. massage ever and his mate is giving him sex eyes, mm. Mm. and that was probably an acting choice of I'm here, I'm your mate, I am supporting you, but at this time it does not come across that way. Mm. Yeah, I think again. I think that's us viewing it with a modern lens. Mm. Uh, I just think at the time they didn't have that. Yeah, that self awareness, for and lack of a better word. I, I guess it's that's the sort of gaze that we'd call earnest. Yeah, like mm. um, the the female romantic character. She'd spent the entire film looking like that. That mm-hmm. earnest, doughy eyed. Oh, I'm so in love. And I think because she was doing it, and the boys were doing it, it mm. kind of felt the same. Yeah, charged lost, in the same way. Have we lost something? In modern society, that we can't have two young boys from rich families with very similar haircuts and slim athletic bodies that go to an old boys school that talk to each other in the shower before and after the event, that they can't just share a gaze without it being something else. Um, who have we lost something? I, I think we may have lost that. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I've got trivia, uh, but I do also have uh, historical accuracies uh, which we need to look at as well. Yes. So we're, we're going to start... Oh, yeah, please. I'd love to hear this. We are going to start with the trivia, um, but because some of it may bleed into um, talking about the historical accuracies. Uh, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. So in real life, uh, Lord Lindsay was actually based off a man named Lord David Bewley. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the first man to do the Great Court Run not Harold Abrams. It was changed because the producer, David Putman, was a socialist and didn't want to show a Lord winning. <laughs> I mean, sure. Didn't I, he come second in this film? Yeah. Like, so by a second? They still, yeah, we but, talked about that. Yeah. And we were like, they specifically stated that no one had finished it in 700 years. No one had done it in the time. Yeah. And they and both did two it. two people do it, mm. and then they celebrate the one of them that gets just ahead. And you're yeah. like, I feel like this... What about this other bloke? Like, yeah, he did yeah. good too. Yeah, the guy who was a lord, they were like, nah, we're not going to celebrate that. And that's one of the reasons why Lord Burley did not allow his name to be used in the movie. And um, there were lots of other reasons. Because they didn't let him win. Yeah. there were. Lo- I, could, mm, I could see, I mean, if he yeah. set a record that was that significant, they were mm. like, we're going to take it away from you. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that's could, bad. Yeah, you can see why you get upset. Mm. And again, I have no sympathy for lords. When Colin Welland uh, completed his Oscar-winning first draft for the screenplay, uh, the only title he could think of for the film was Runners. 
Well, uh, it got straight to the point. Yeah. But then he realized there wasn't much of that in the film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it should say runners, not running, just runners. <laughs> uh, one Sunday evening, he turned on BBC's religious music series, Songs of Praise, uh, very popular in the UK on a Sunday night. Mm-hmm. That was that was the t- sign it was time to go to bed sometimes. Uh, it, featuring the hymn Jerusalem, the chorus includes the words, bring me my chariot of fire. The writer leapt up to his feet and shouted to his wife, I've got it, Pat! Chariots of fire! Quote. That's that's what mm. this thing says. Look, it's a... It's- uh, it's an evocative name, I guess. Uh, it just it, makes it sound so much cooler than it is. Yeah, it feels like a non sequitur <laughs> in this day and age. The, but like mm. chariots of fire, obviously, it's you know, it's talking about swift moving it's vehicles. About speed. And... It's about danger. It's about these I, young men with a burning passion again, to run. I, I think it feels maybe unearned, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I can see where that's a cool name. I mean, what, would you, a... what would you prefer? Like uh, sedan chairs of privilege? Like what, what's, what's going to be better? <laughs> Um, come back to me. Okay. Uh, Eric Little was indeed born in China. His parents were missionaries. Uh, he returned as a missionary and during the Japanese occupation of China was taken to a Japanese internment camp where he died from a brain tumour just before the camp was liberated. It's mm, tragic. It is tragic. And it is, it's, it, it just feels that bit more tragic because as you say, Eric Little, in, at least in this film, comes across as being a bit more likable than a lot of the other characters. Hmm. Um, Again, I, th- I I got to the point where he was the only one that I actually... And it, even as much as he was ultimately a vehicle for what I perceive to be hmm. um, some quite overt uh, religious messaging, hmm. um, I still... He, he felt like the only one that had a journey or a... I didn't care about the other guys. Yeah. I thought one, we thought one of them was likable. But like the um, uh, uh, Abrahams, wasn't mm. Abrahams was just a petulant child the entire thing. Mm. Mm. That's why I think we needed to see him doing some work so you could be like, okay, he's single-minded and and childish or whatever. But look at how much work he puts into this thing he's passionate. But we don't, we don't sadly. Although it received a standing ovation when shown in competition at the 1981 Cannes Film Festival, this movie was mercilessly savaged by the French critics, probably because they kept calling the French frogs in the film. Probably, yeah. Um, in, in fact, the, the French critics specifically referenced the fact that they were called frogs and an unprincipled lot in the film. Uh, their quotes from the movie. Um, yeah, in, in order I mean... I, we picked up on that. Yeah. And it was funny because... There was a surprising amount of like... Just casual. Dismissive, casual. problematic language towards yeah. various other ethnicities and races. What that showed me, specifically with the French, was that you neither of you two grew up in England. Yeah. That, that language, when referring to the French, uh, at least in the circles that I went in, which was quite a lot mm. of different uh, areas... The people talk about like that, about the French, quite a lot. And mm. it, you know what? It... it it isn't right that they do that. But at the same time, it is a rivalry between these two nations which goes back hundreds of years. And I kind of feel like the way it's spoken of now is less um, problematic than it has been previously. It's not to excuse it, though, but it was just really funny what, like sitting here and watching the two of you go, mm. they're really going after the French. And I'm like, this is uh, just I don't a normal think the day. frogs was the issue. I think it was more... They, they had a few other things to say. Mm. Yeah, they had a lot of... And uh, it wasn't just towards the French either. Mostly the anti-Semitic stuff was, oh, yeah. was no, problematic. That, that stuff was, was not good. But yeah, yeah the, the French stuff, at least, there's, like a, there's almost like a cultural... I guess it's a joke that's not funny, I think is what yeah, it ultimately comes I, down to. Yeah, because I remember growing up and hearing 
that phrase used about the French as a kid and just kind of been like, this is, this sounds like an insult. Why is this an insult? Like, mm. In order to prevent the negative criticism response from uh, hurting its international distribution by the French critics, Roger Ebert lobbied the other American critics in attendance to award it the American Critics Prize, which they did on a 6-5 to five vote. This marks the only time in the 60-odd year history of the festival that this award has been presented. So basically Roger Ebert just made up an award so that wow. the French wouldn't rip it to pieces. Yeah, great. Yeah. So, cool. I mean... Well, it depends who you That's very ask, precious. but a lot of people have a lot of similar things to say about the yeah. Academy. I mean, that that sounds like the character of Abraham's <laughs> whining about, you know, how hard everything is I for mean, him. That, might, that kind of mindset might explain why they got so many nominations. Mm. Uh, Ian Charleston, uh, who plays Eric Little, uh, wrote Little's inspiring speech to the post-race working men's crowd. Charleston, who had been studying the Bible in preparation for the role, told director Hugh Hudson that he didn't feel the scripted, sanctimonious and portentous speech was authentic or inspiring. Charleston was uncomfortable with performing the words as scripted, and it was decided that he should write what he felt comfortable speaking, and thus created that particular speech. Okay, that's pretty cool. So, yeah. I like that. basically, this, this script was more dogmatic. I worry dogmatic. about what the original one is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This um, this script was more dogmatic when he got it, and he went, "Oh, let's let's turn this down a bit." Yeah, I mean, too far. Let me read the Bible. Mm. Uh, producer David Putman arranged a screening of this movie for Eric Little's widow. Uh, afterwards, she said she loved the movie and that it fully captured her husband's character. However, she felt that they did get one thing wrong, and it was that her husband had a much more graceful running style than shown. <laughs> Putman was astonished. He said the only thing they really knew about Little when making this movie was his running style from all the news reel footage they had of him. Right. The one thing he was fully confident that they had gotten right, he was told, now nah, you got it wrong. He didn't run like that. Might be a bit of rose-tinted glasses there from the wife. Yeah. But, but I mean, the running... Wait, so, the running... hang on, who's, who's running started they get right? Because we, the... we had a lot to say about their running well, techniques. This is specifically, obviously, the Scottish guy. They felt they got it right, yeah. with, with the arms up. And his head back and his <laughs> mouth gaping open. Sometimes holding a piece of paper. <laughs> Looked like he was trying to shoo a fly away from himself. Yeah, that's who they thought they got right. I've got to look up some of these videos. <laughs> they, they run like I do, except mm. apparently it... fast. I mean, good on him. I mean, it just goes to show how how the technique has changed so much over the years. But yeah, we all think we all commented that they, their running style was very flaily. <laughs> it was a bit sporadic. Yeah, but perhaps. then again, you know, this was a time when the sport was more for amateurs. There was mm. less professional sportsmen around, so the running styles would vary much more drastically than than we have nowadays. Mm. So I, I think. They well, captured that quite well. We we were talking about. It. We thought that that was that just how they were going to start. And when the running coach comes in, he shows them how to <laughs> run properly, well, and that's how they get to. better. Like they had yeah, that well. one scene where he was like, "No, you must run this way," and then he went back to running the same way he'd always mm-hmm. run. So the male military band included several women wearing false mustaches, just like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> or indeed, um, there are any women here? No, no, no. 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 <laughs> um, Parts of this movie were filmed over several days at Golden Acre in Edinburgh. Each morning, television antennas had to be taken down for historical realism <laughs> and then erected in the evening when shooting had finished. Inevitably, it overran, leading to friction with local residents. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
They won't get to watch the TV. Mm. That was a pretty shot, though. It so. was pretty. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of Scotland. I mean, it's it's not hard to get good cinematography if you're yeah. anywhere in Scotland. Just just go for a walk. Well, mm. any countryside in Scotland. Uh, a couple of famous uh, people or people who've become famous since this film uh, has was released were in the crowd scenes as extras. Uh, Ruby Wax, Sir Kenneth Branagh, and Stephen Fry were all extras. Now, we spotted we Stephen spotted Fry. Stephen Fry yeah. In fact, Fry acted as a shop steward or organiser for the extras and managed, in David Putnam's words, to screw an extra pound a day out of me. So, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we saw him. <laughs> no subtext there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, I'm sure Stephen Fry would give you the one eyebrow raised and a wry look on that particular <laughs> line. This film was selected by the Vatican in the values category of its list of 45 great films. So for long-time listeners of this series, the Vatican once again joining in. Um, Why, though? I think <laughs> probably don't understand of... what they would see in the film. <laughs> it's the running. Hang on, the Vatican, where's that again? Uh, it's in uh, Rome. Okay, what do they get up to? Anything? Oh, they're really big on Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nah, probably not. Probably okay. not that. Nah, seems doesn't seem legit. Yeah, but no, this is this is a film that they're like. No, this is a good film. This shows good Catholic values. I am. Yeah. Um, if I'd known that before we started, I probably would have said no to watching this. <laughs> to film? watching the film. You what, think is so? this just uh, an anti-Catholic streak that you have, or is more it more <laughs> of an anti-Vatican streak? Okay. You know. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, can't have one without the other. I'm we just did, we did see a little there. creepiness in it. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, there were there were a couple of moments of like, particularly with little with there the young fam. Little, yeah, yeah young little fam. and the one fam. We just and it was a little, it was a little mm. uh, cringy. I mean, winking at a he young winked girl. winked and then later on she wanted an autograph and he, he was like, take the pen out of my pocket and leaned in. Mm. It was creepy. I don't know. I, again. I, I feel like that, that, that again. With a modern viewing. Modern viewing stuff, yeah. yeah. In the Catholic Church yeah. where he is an authority figure. Uh, Eric Little's not an authority figure. He was a guy that ran a bit. Like, but I get he what gave you mean. regular sermons. But he's he's a representative of them and he does want to be a missionary. I get how that messaging certainly now comes across as being mm. like, ooh. I mean, the way she was staring at him. Was... I, I very much hope that that was not the case, and yeah. I don't believe it was, because there's no evidence to suggest it. That was perhaps Doesn't another one of much. those. They didn't have the cultural awareness to be like, they just needed that one guy to be like, guys, that looks creepy. But mm. like any older man mm. winking at an underage girl yeah. is wrong you can't at wink. any time. Winking's not a thing anymore. Have we lost something? <laughs> Have we lost the ability to wink? Like, think about... Okay. Probably for a man. Think about... If you winked at literally anyone, Stephen. Yeah. Do it. It would be creepy, right? See? I just did it to Sarah. Was it creepy? It was weird. Yeah? Stop winking at me. Okay. I don't even want to do it. I just know that if I did it, I'd, I would feel... I don't know. Okay, well... We've lost winking, people. Winking is no longer part of the cultural zeitgeist. I just did it to Dean. How did that feel? felt a little stilted, like you had to focus on keeping one of your eyes open. It did. I don't wink very often. Maybe we have lost it. I think, it was, I think it's gone. Yeah. I don't think I wink very well. I... Let's, let's see. In this audio, that was very like, like someone... Yeah, you needed a help t- head tilt to go with Yeah, it. you had to move your head. You were like, you know them clown heads that you shoot water in at the carnival? <laughs> it was like one of them winking at I just me. think there's like a, a bunch of other like looks I would give someone before I would give them a wink. Mm. Like a bit of... The eyebrow raise, yeah. Or just like a... Bit of a squint, yeah. Double, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> this I isn't do. going in the podcast. Uh, look, 
I'm keeping it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's important the audience know um, that. You heard yeah. it right here. Dean Lovett's hot take. Dean Lovett. Let's bring back winking and stop being creepy about it. Unless you're a man or Wink- a woman. <laughs> winking at underage children. This should be the new challenge. Yeah. Wink at someone and try not to make it creepy. Yeah. I think it can be done. but I disagree. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I think it, the, within the realm, infinite universe, there are possibilities, sure, but mm. I can't think of one. Uh, would you guys like some of the historical accuracies yes. or disaccuracies uh, with this yeah. film? I just made up the word disaccuracy and I'm it's very It's neologism. It's, it's mm. perfect. There is a word already, though. Mm. Inaccuracies. <laughs> yeah. uh, I said it disaccurately. I must apologise. <laughs> I'm too tired for this. The film depicts Abrahams as attending um, Gonville and Caius College in Cambridge with three other Olympic athletes, Henry Stallard, Aubrey Montague and Lord Lindsay. Uh, Abrams and Stallard were in fact students there and competed at the Olympics. Montague also competed at the Olympics, but he attended Oxford, yeah, not dude. Cambridge. So why didn't... They just wanted to put them all in the same thing. Um, uh, because they didn't believe that Oxford was, in fact, better. Aubrey Montague sent daily letters to his mother about his time at the at Oxford and the Olympics, and these letters were the basis for Montague's narration of the film. Okay. He narrated the film. He was the old guy who was like, ah, oh, yes, remember our friend? Two-hour flashback. Is that yes. who that guy was? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. God. Like, when literally, I think it was one of you guys right at the end, was like, we get back to the church, we're not at the end of the film. I went, oh, wait, I forgot this entire film was a flashback. Odd choice. Mm. Uh, The character of Lindsay was based partially on Lord Burley, a significant figure in the history of British athletics. Mm. Although Burley did attend Cambridge, he was not a contemporary of Abrams. Uh, One scene in the film depicts the Burley-based Lindsay as practising hurdles on his estate with full champagne glasses placed on each hurdle. This was something the wealthy Burley did, although he used matchboxes instead of champagne glasses. Uh, the fictional character of Lindsay was created when Douglas Lowe, who was Britain's third athletics gold medalist in 1924, was not willing to be involved in the film. Yeah. No, we liked his character. Mm. Yeah, he was, he was, he was, was likeable. That was may fun. be because, though, he was, like, a character who was, like, actually not sh- the real person they were trying to bring to life. But also, I mean, they showed him setting up hurdles and practicing with a, with a really specific technique that showed skill and difficulty by by setting up the champagne glass which obviously in the real world was a match that demonstrates that he has a level of excellence that he mm. tries to give up we were it, all it, impressed by that it doesn't take much i thought it was a waste of champagne but it, it doesn't take much to show that these are the elite <laughs> athletes and they're really they have to do something special to get there i don't know they just didn't do it. They nah. just didn't, especially Abrahams. He just kind of just kept winning. And they were like, yeah, he's just really fast. Speaking of Abrahams, Abrahams' fiance is misidentified as Sybil Gordon, who was a soprano uh, for a local opera company. In fact, in 1936, Abrahams married Sybil Evers, who did sing um, it, for the same opera company, but they didn't meet until 1934, some 10 years after the events of this film. Also, in the film, Sybil is depicted as singing the role of Yum Yum in The Mikado, but neither Sybil Gordon nor Sybil Evers ever sang that role, uh, although Evers is known for her charm in singing Pete Bow, uh, one of the other uh, little maids. Uh, Harold Abrams' love and heavy involvement with Gilbert and Sullivan, as depicted in the film, though, is factual. Nice. I mean, I was here for the Gilbert and Sullivan, I've yeah. got to admit, that was my favourite part. Were they good of renditions? The they, I mean, you know. They were, they were fine. 
There's there's issues with the Mikado, obviously. Mm-hmm. Go in depth. <laughs> yeah, this is the this is the forum for it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, let's talk about racism in the Mikado and mm. um, the, Goodness, the yeah. you know the issues there. I mean, I quite liked their rendition of HMS Pinafore and Pirates of Penzance. Um, I think Pinafore is one of my favourites, and Penzance, mm. yeah, that's one of my favourites too. Uh, Little's sister Jenny, who Little Jenny, yeah, Little Jenny, um, right. was actually much littler uh, than she is portrayed in the film. She was quite a few years younger than she actually was in the film. Her disapproval of Little's uh, track career was creative license, as it's written here. And by that, they mean a complete lie. Yeah, I would have guessed that. She mm. was actually fully supportive of his sporting work. Yeah. Well, it made no sense. Mm. Yeah. Like, it, it was such a thing. And you're just like, he wants to, again, mm. go on a two-week vacation and do some running. Mm. Like, However, Jenny herself um, cooperated fully with the making of the film and actually has a brief cameo in the Paris Church of Scotland during Little Sermon. So she's one of the people okay. listening to his sermon. I'd find that offensive if it was me. Mm. Like, if... I was depicted in that way. Oh, uh, yeah, as a foil. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Like... I, she was a plot device. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know, again, I'm, I, this is very much a Monday lens, because I think every woman in the script got treated, or the, the very few that were in the script didn't get any good treatment. Mm. Mm. Uh, the memorial service for Harold Abrams, which opens and closes the film... Uh, features Lord Lindsay mentioning that he and Aubrey Montague are the only members of the 1924 Olympic team still alive. Uh, this is obviously not true because one, Lord Lindsay isn't real, but two, Aubrey Montague died in 1948. So the two old men in the old man age prosthetics, Oof. neither of them were actually there. Then because... why make that scene? <laughs> why? I'll tell you. I, you want to know why? I'll tell you exactly why. Because they needed to pan up to the British crests. <laughs> Mm. What was the crest exactly? It was the coat of arms. Coat of arms on a giant pipe organ in a church. You can do that without having... It's almost like they needed to draw attention to nationalism and religious dogma at the same time. But why have them almost so as if old to encapsulate and have a flashback at all? Like, just go to a church somewhere and, you know, stick what's-his-face up on the pulpit. Mm. Look, I can, I kind of agree. I mean, like, in fact, I generally agree. Just set how little time we spent at the start of the film and at the end of the film to make the whole film a flashback was just... Especially with a character who none of us could identify. Mm. I didn't hate it. I just didn't think it did anything. Yeah. Didn't do anything bad. Didn't do anything good. Mm. I mean, there was some pretty singing. Uh, The final uh, inaccuracy that I've included there were many more but a lot of them were to do with actually how the 1924 olympics went down and we're we're not here reviewing the olympics we're reviewing the film um jackson schultz the american athlete is depicted as handing little the inspirational bible quotation that says uh, it says in the old book he that honors me i will honor good luck in reality that note was from members of the british team and it was handed to little before the race by his attending monsieur in the team's hotel for dramatic purposes, screenwriter Colin Welland asked Schultz, who was still around at the time, if he could depict him handing the note. And Schultz readily agreed, saying, yeah, great, as long as it makes me look good. <laughs> so... <laughs> you know, for some reason that's reminded me of the most important character mm. in this entire film, uh, according to us right at the beginning, was the nosy waiter. Mm. Ah, the nosy wet. He was great. Did you enjoy it, sir? <laughs> it, just I a... love how you called him nosy. 
Mm. <laughs> that, that means two things. He had a very large nose. And For those of you at home, well. and if this doesn't get cut, we are referring to the scene in which Abrahams takes his once and future wife, who wasn't actually in the real world his once and future wife, um, to the restaurant. And there's a particular way to bring them a drink with a really horrible sleazy grin you know forced smile mm. leans over the table and says something like i hope you enjoyed sir and then proceeds to remain leaned over the table for a good three minutes he knows how to get his face time and the camera tracks in on the two of them almost as if to cut him out but and he manages keeps leaning to he just keeps leaning and manages to perfectly leave his nose in the top corner of the frame if you want to go back and check it out mm. it's Hilarious. Best part is, of the whole film. As as each of us have been extras in our life, we, <laughs> or as I've seen a few of those extras that try that maneuver to get mm. in the frame and get that payday, I respect his moxie. Yeah, and look, we're talking about it almost forty years later. So yeah, good, yeah. I mean, good stuff. If you, yeah, mm. I mean, it's a bit on the nose, but what can you do? Oh, zing, 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 zing. I do also have some Ian Holm trivia. Yes. Just general Ian Holm so trivia. That's what this is about. Yes. Yeah. Um, just just the three bits. Um, and these are also sourced from IMDb. So if they're not true, don't blame me. Um, he supplied voice for radio announcements by the New York Presbyterian Medical Center where he had been treated for prostate cancer. Hmm. So his, he did voiceover stuff for hospital radio, basically, which yeah, is right. kind of nice. Um, he hated milk. Nice respect. I feel that much to his discomfort. Well, I don't hate milk. My my body hates yeah. milk. Yeah, you're, you're milk ambivalent, really. <laughs> yeah, I'm milk agnostic. Yeah, you're just milking I this believe one. in the existence of milk. I'm just not convinced if milk. <laughs> I I don't accept milk as part of my life. Um, much to his discomfort, he had to repeatedly gargle and spit it out for his final scene in Alien, because all that oh, white stuff that was on all him. milk. Yeah, could they not get some milk? milk? Um, possibly. Yeah, will you accept half and half, Ian? <laughs> Just like... As someone who wait, he ha- he just didn't like it, or he actually was like. He just says he hated milk. I don't okay. know if he was actually. Like As someone who is lactose intolerant, you joke, but half and half will treat you better than full cream milk. Like mm. that almost would have been a good step. And finally, a co-star from this film actually uh, has a quote for him. Uh, after directing Ian in Henry V from 1989, Kenneth Branagh defined his acting style as anything you can do, I can do less of. <laughs> Go on. I mean, he's very understated, he, especially in this film. Yeah. The, the, the most overstated thing he does is he punches his hat. <laughs> but the, but that the reserved nature of that, like he did the absurd action, but you could see like that would be the trope moment in mm. the sports film where everyone's like, yeah, yeah, and the coach is losing it and he probably tears up and he calls his estranged son or something, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. That typically is a big moment for that coach. He, he played it very reserved. He kind of just steps back and hears the music and sits down and mm. he has his moment. It, was very, it felt very real. It felt very authentic. Yeah. And it was that was a moment where I was like, yeah, he's doing well in this role. I, I do have to say that I loved that shot, that, that, that tiny scene shot where he sees that it is the Union flag that's being raised. Mm. So he knows mm-hmm. that Howard's yeah. won, uh, Harold's won. And then, yeah, he kind of goes and sits down on the bed because he's getting emotional. I was like, that 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 bit was really good. And yeah. th- this film does have and good bits. Him doing that yeah. in a static shot, which tracked a little bit to the left as he kind of went to sit down, that evoked more emotion than me than it would have if he was just like, whoopee! You know? Yeah. He doesn't um, milk the scene or the acting. He doesn't milk anything. He doesn't, he doesn't milk like anything. milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we found the connection. Oh. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so, ultimately, 
that was Chariots of Fire. Um, and, you know, uh, rest in peace, Ian Holm. We, we will, you know, miss him. He was a tremendous performer. And... Mm. Um, I think contributed quite a lot to this film. Yeah, I mean, even after he got terrible stage fright, he was still out there doing good stuff. Mm. And yeah, stage fright. Yeah, he got terrible stage fright. It was God. What was the show? It was in the eighties. The Iceman Cometh. Mm. And he he basically got awful stage fright. I think it was nineteen seventy six. Got awful stage fright and essentially stopped being a theatre actor. He only went back and did a few a couple Some more plays the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because he just got he just got this awful Some level of anxiety. Yeah, anxiety yeah. and just lost yeah. his nerve, basically. Mm-hmm. And did he still it, do films? Oh yeah, well all of this is yeah. subsequent. Yeah. You know, a- a- Alien was a few years after yeah, this was right. a couple of years after. Obviously Lord of the Rings was quite a few years after. And The Hobbit was his final film. Yeah. Which he did as a um as a favour to Peter Jackson. Because he was already too sick, but um, mm. he kind of went, you know what? I'll do it. What a ledge. Yeah, real let's legend. Ledge. And now, let's honour his uh, memory by scoring this film. Uh, this is scoring obviously... Scoring it because the score is so good. The score is excellent. Vangelis, once again, I don't think we talked about it enough. Vangelis was really good scoring the music for this film, and uh, it is it is definitely the best bit of this film. Mm. It, is, it is very well done, even though it's maybe kind of uh, anachronistic to have... 80s synth music over scenes from the 1920s but it, it worked and like after after ha- harold had won the race and there was just that really drawn out music and they kept showing the race happening again the music made it sound like it wasn't real but it that, was wait, i thought someone was about that, to die i you are reminding me I, that was a weird choice <laughs> the music definitely did something it evoked something but that choice to play really ominous music after yeah. we've already seen him win and then slowly replay him winning. Mm. Yeah, like, was it a dream? I don't was know it... what the... Did he have a heart attack? Like... Well, I, I can think of maybe the idea behind it, like it didn't feel real and then yeah. it, he, and then it did feel real, like it was, it was oh. surreal at the moment. It yeah. just, it took us in another direction that we were like, why was that there? On reflection, from having now watched the rest of the film and knowing where that story goes and how Harold has to like move on with his life, that is a moment of horror for him because he has he, he's done it and now he is nothing. Yeah. He okay. was obsessed with the running, yeah, and I think he hasn't quite realised it yet in the same way that we haven't. And the fact that it, I think it flashing back and showing the race again is it showing him reliving that moment of glory, mm. and then he is lost for the rest of the story until he finds one of the sibyls where you know he's he, he is lost um and, and like when the, the, see i would have I yeah would, again that sounds like a really interesting plot and a really interesting character journey that i we want to see what happens saw. next hmm. yeah not even see what next but i, I wanted to we got a little bit of that hmm. but not much you know if we'd got in his head for the rest of the film hmm. i think it would have made sense the music for when they were digging out uh, the ground with the trowels as well was excellent. Super tense. <laughs> the American guy that looked like he was going to stab him. I, was. It was so tense. I, I think I said that to you guys in the moment. I was like, is he about to get shipped? <laughs> yeah. So, well done, Vangelis, with the music. Yeah, great we, music. we do have to score the film. And Dean, this was your first time watching you. Chariots of Fire, so you yep. get to go first. What score would you give it out of 10? Uh, out of 10, okay. Out of 10, I'm, um, I'm going to give Holmes... 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Fantastic actor. But the film. Um, great career. <laughs> such, <laughs> such a shame to lose him. And very good in this. Yeah. 
Um, this is going to be a mixed score for me. If I could break down my score, it'd be a bit. I'm, I'm taking too much time with this. If I could break down my score, because the cinematography is great, the music was great. Uh, not all the acting, but a lot of the acting was good. Um, they did a lot of things right. Um, mm. I just think, and I can appreciate my own bias on this because I see a bunch of rich white boys pushing a very religious message, and I'm like, oh, shut up! You're not. This wasn't a hard time for you. You have your families could support you to run in your free time and go to the best schools. In England, other people had. I digress. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna give it. Um, I'm gonna give it six point five personal privileged parapets <laughs> out of ten. All right, um, Sarah, what are you giving the film? Um, I quite liked Ian Holm in this. Mm. Um, it wasn't. I, it wasn't my favourite role he's ever done. Mm. Um, you know, I couldn't understand half of the words he said. It's because he had a cigar in his mouth. That was part <laughs> of the problem. Uh, the music was excellent. Mm. The cinematography was great. The costumes were good. Shame about pretty much everything else in this film. Mm. So I am going to give this two nosy waiters ahead of ten. Yeah, look, I think this, for me this is actually a really hard one to score as well because I did not like this film in terms of like, am I ever going to watch this film again? Probably not. Like I now know why I lost my memory of it. Yeah. Um. But, but even in spite of the fact that I'm sitting here going, I didn't enjoy this. This is certainly a well-made film though. Mm. I think it's perhaps got its status as being, one of a notable film from the past because of the soundtrack. You and can be- appreciate it for the cultural, uh, cultural touchstone. Yeah, for the, that the it was and has become. Yeah, for the soundtrack for the the story that it was telling, even if I don't think it told that story well. Um, for some of the acting, as you say, for the costumes, I think it captures that feeling of the nineteen twenties in a really interesting way. For a certain. For certain bits. For a, no, for a certain group of people. Yes. Oh yeah, so they're, yeah, yeah. They're privileged. Yeah, obviously. But I just can't escape the fact that I did not have a great time in terms of like with the film. I loved watching it with you two. It was <laughs> tremendously good. It would fun. not have been good if I'm we going to give um, the people I viewed it with elevens out, out of ten. Yeah, you guys are uh, total elevens out of ten. But for me, um, I think that this film is probably going to have to. I'm, I'm going to settle on three and a half. Um, Ian Holm massages out of ten. <laughs> Y'all are brutal. Yeah. Um, it's just. Yeah, I think it. I think it is a film that has not aged very well, and I think if for a lot of people, um, you know, particularly people who have been brought up on the sports films that came after it, and you're like, "This is Chariots of Fire." It's a really influential sporting film, and you then sat down and watched it. I think you would be horrendously disappointed. Well, we were discussing before the film even started the kind of tropes of a sporting film, mm. the things that they do, and now they've kind of become cliches, but they still work as cliches. Yeah. Um, it's almost a formula, but it's a formula for a reason. Mm. And I saw none of that in this. But then, and I wish I'd saw. It would have really helped in some areas. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's subverting the expectation because we are expecting the sports films that we're used to. But this isn't a film about sport. This is a film about these young men with sport as the catalyst. But that's. I think that's ultimately the biggest criticism of the film, which was outside of these individuals. 
running the races and winning medals, they were not interesting people. Mm. Yeah, they I didn't have, have to like the characters yeah. to root for They them. had nothing going on in their lives yeah. that made them special. I don't know their personal lives. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, they had nothing going on that made them interesting or special to follow outside of the fact that in history, they ran really fast and beat some other people and that's great. Yeah. And, you know, Eric Little's story I was interested in, but I didn't necessarily... I was like, oh, boy, Eric, I wish I could hang out with him. You know who did, though? Mm. Uh, did the coach. Yeah. He had, by far, the most interesting story, much of which we had to look up uh, <laughs> on our own, and yeah. he didn't get anywhere near enough screens. He didn't. So, in, in a way, maybe this was the perfect film to go, look how great Ian yeah. Holm is, <laughs> because the rest of this... Was kind of poo. Ian but... Holmes upstaging everyone. Yeah. Uh, so uh, all that remains for me to say is, Dean and Sarah, thank you so much for watching Chariots of Fire with me. Yeah. Thank you for um, for sharing this experience with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Hey, you disagree with us? You think Chariots of Fire is a great film? Let us know on Facebook. Likewise, if you agree with us and go, eh, it's okay, or not great, uh, we, we can be found on Facebook. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there. We are also on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. Uh, sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Become a, a member of the club. You get some extra bonus goodies here and there. Um, maybe possibly the odd bit that's trimmed out of this podcast might end up there in the near future for you to listen to uh, by all means just search for us over on patreon and of course make sure you have subscribed each and every week there's a new episode and um, that can be found on itunes or soundcloud or spotify or any of those podcasting services but that's all for this week so until next time goodbye Chariots of fire. Chariots of fire. I lost my bombi. When somebody sneezed. That's a very simple song, isn't it? That's he just ripped off that song. The whole thing's a sham. I lost my meat bowl. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.